love riding my bike. I love running. I don't care what they think about it. I love it. At that point, when I knew I was going to win, chills just went up and down my entire body. I don't believe there are any good or bad foods. Food is food. I still feel so passionate about getting that record that I'm like, I'm just going to do it. As an athlete, I was like, what's my story or what's your story? What can you learn from it? And what can you teach people? Welcome to the Iron Women Podcast. I'm Haley Chura. I'm joined by Alyssa Gadeski. Alyssa, I have been following your social media and it looks like you have been swimming a lot. Also, does your pool still require lane reservations? Is that what's happening in uh, Vermont? Yes. Much to my dismay, much to Sarah True's dismay, they still require lane reservations despite repeated um, feedback and comments on feedback forms and emails about how that's a major barrier to entry for people swimming and how it's a barrier to entry for mothers whose lives are chaotic and just need to drop into the pool and swim when they get the minute and swim and like all of the above, it gets us nowhere. So um, people here just really prefer to have their own lane space reserved apparently and our gym is sticking to it. So Luckily, we have finally gotten them away from single person per lane reservation. That was a real killer um, because one person per lane when there are 11 lanes in the pool and the master. So we also have master. I'm just going full on into this because I love complaining about this, Haley. So masters goes from 530 to 730. They have two shifts, like two one hour sessions, and they get eight of the 11 lanes and then free swimmers, open swimmers get would get the remaining three, right? So during like prime morning swim, pre-work hours, three lanes are available. And when it was up to a month ago, it was one person per lane. And that was really, really hard because you had to be like on the reservation system to be nailing your reservation and blah, blah, blah. And it was needless to say, there was not a lot of early morning swimming, which was not great for people for my own schedule, selfishly. (laughs) I didn't like, I like to swim in the morning. It's like the best time, um, to get that done, I feel like. And so they finally changed it to be two people per lane. So now six people can be swimming in the mornings when masters is going on, which actually has helped a lot because not because they're, they, they still reach capacity, but I think it's not as bad because I think a lot of, of the people only swim when they can get their own lane. So it like actually weeded out a lot of early, it's like new swimmers now swimming in the morning because we're the swimmers who like to share lanes, right? Like we don't care who's there. And so it hasn't been as bad, but it is, it's just a, a giant mountain in, in the swimming situation here in Vermont. But, um, the good news is I am still finding ways to get the yards in Haley and making it happen and swimming's going well. So yeah. So wait, okay. I have a couple questions. Okay. You don't want to swim with masters. What's wrong with the masters group? So I could, I could do two hours of masters and get in maybe 5,000 yards of swimming, but so they're not fast enough for you. No, they're saying they are fat. They actually have quite fast, but it's very sprint focused. There's like, there's just a lot of sprinting. And when you're training for a race that involves 50 K of swimming, like I need, you know, if I have to do 7,500 yards for the day, I'm not going to spend three hours at the pool. Right. I'm going to try and spend like less than two hours at the pool. Right. So, um, it's just, it's, it's not efficient basically to swim masters for what I'm trying to train for. Um, and so that's kind of 
the problem with that. But I agree. I mean, that I thought about that for a bit and it does seem like a very, the coach is really nice, um, fun group of people, but it just doesn't really seem to make sense to do those workouts right now. Okay. And then are you able to make like, uh, it does seem like you're able to make multiple reservations though. So you can like reserve a lane back to back to back so you can get a long swim in. You can. And I mean, I feel like I'm saying this at the risk. That's not really a risk because I don't think that the pool managers are listening to the Iron Women podcast, but, and I don't think most people appear to only want to swim like 15 minutes, which is the funny thing, right? Like from while I'm there for a few hours, I'm watching what's going on. And it just seemed like most people prefer short swims. And so they haven't capped I think during like the prime COVID times, there was a cap on how many reservations you could have, but they've taken that off. So I can do back to back to back. What happens sometimes is depending on the shuffle of the lanes, like the shared lanes for open swimming are sometimes in the middle of the pool, sometimes on the end of the pool, sometimes, and it like changes by 30 minute blocks sometimes. And so sometimes like I swim 30 minutes and then there's someone like tapping me, like now you move over here. And then I like go over there and after 30 minutes, they're tapping me. Now you move over here. And I'm just like, Oh boy. But like, I mean, I've never complained about a little bit of extra rest in, in a set like that. So that is like the least of my concerns if I'm shuffled around, but because again, at least I am, no one's yelling at me to get out after two or three hours. So that's helpful. Yeah. I mean, people say that dealing with a little adversity, I think can help at different points in life. So, you know, maybe it is. And also your swim run anyway. So it's like, okay, getting out and getting vertical for a few minutes can't hurt. Um, uh, how is it going? How, what's your longest swim and how are you feeling? Um, I'm feeling good. I did just under 30 K this week and, um, I am handling the swim volume. I think a lot better than I was like two or three weeks ago. So that shows, you know, progress. And I also have been able to ramp up some run mileage and things like that. Um, so overall, like to see my swimming still improve while I am running a bit more and spending more time on my legs is good. Um, and I'm just like always hungry. Like I forgot how hungry or how, yeah, how hungry swimming makes you. And so I'm just always dreaming about food and trying to eat and never feeling quite like I'm getting in enough, but um, you know, Sarah, Sarah true will sometimes come in during my swim. And like, she judges, she tries to guess like how long I've been in the pool based on how many spring energy wrappers I have like on the pool deck, um, or something to just be like, Oh, you've been here for three hours already. Like <laughs> you look like you've been fueling a lot. So I'm, you know, trying to do all the things, but, um, I'm not getting faster with my swimming at this point, but I am definitely handling the volume more and, um, enjoying open water swimming, which is something I can't say I've really ever been able to say before. So like when I get in and do a three mile open water swim, the time's actually passing pretty quickly versus in my prior swimming life, I would have been dreading every stroke. So I feel like that is a good sign that swim fitness is is setting in as well. And it sounds like a plus for your pools that they let you have some uh, food on deck. So they're not like cracking down on, I I've heard of people, you know, swimming at pools and they only allow water or something like that. And so you have to kind of sneak things. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine if they tried to tell me I could only have water too, because I, I really would then have to like write a thesis about how you can't have people exercising without access to calories. Right. So, um, I think they're saving themselves also a little bit of effort in letting that happen, but hopefully I'm setting a good example because every now and then I see someone else swimming for quite a while. And, um, you know, I think it's always good to see people fueling while swimming, which is 
not something you always think of, especially if you are a newer swimmer. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, and also we should probably put out that you are not just commiserating with everyone in at least I think the world actually on the challenges of swim training in a public pool, because it is hard. I think everywhere. I know a lot of my athletes that I coach, I could complain about this all day. So sometimes it's good to know, you know, pros are just like us, but you are swimming this much because you have the one water race in Sweden coming up. Uh, and it's called one water, not just for fun, but there is a lot of swimming involved, a lot of running too. I am curious though. You, we talked previously about your knee injury and are you able to push off the wall with both feet or is it, are you doing like the one-legged push-offs? Yeah, no, I have really since most, since like early in the injury, I've been able to swim normally and push off the wall very normally, which has been great. So um, that has never really been too much of an issue. Um, really, it's just like, it's just not comfortable when you run, like I can do a good bit of hiking now too. So I've been able to get better time on feet. And, um, it's just like, it's just really running that makes it super unhappy. Um, and it is getting better as I strengthen all of the other things in my legs, um, with like quads and hamstrings and calves and, and stuff like that. But I can tell like one day, off of, you know, the PT exercises or strength exercises that I need to be doing. And I can definitely tell that does not help. So staying on top of those things has been very important, but as long as I do that, I feel like I'm, I'm trending in the right direction and definitely like raising the bar of what I'm the uncomfortableness (laughs) that I'm willing to put myself through while running, which who knows what that will pay off for, um, in the future life of Alyssa. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's at least going to now where I think it's, it's bearable. I just have to be ready to bear it. (laughs) And I think it's 200 kilometers total of running at one water, but what is the longest run segment? I know we've talked about the longest swim segment being like, I think around six or seven K but the longest run segment, what is that? Yeah, it depends on the course that they give us, which we won't know until right before the race. And then kind of our route within that course, I guess, but looking at the islands in the archipelago of Sweden, like there's not too many really big ones, right? So about a half marathon of running at once is kind of our estimate for what the top end of running at one time would be. So that is, I mean, it's super helpful. I think if I was preparing to run 200 kilometers straight, right, we'd be having a very different conversation. But since I'm preparing to run up to a half marathon broken up with swims, it's like, it's actually way better. Like every time I kind of get a little break, even if it's like a minute walk break, right. To like reset my knee, it actually does help a lot. So, um, I think jumping in some cold Swedish water will be an excellent reset for it in between, in between all the swims, but, um, but yeah, it's going to be going to be a lot of running. So, and hiking and bushwhacking. So some of that is, you know, for people who haven't heard me talk about the race, it's, it is 200 kilometers of, they call it running, but really you are hiking a good bit of it. There's bushwhacking. It's not always on trails or roads. So some of it will be quite slow. Um, and I think that, you know, I'll definitely pack like trekking poles and things like that. But for the most part, my knee has been holding up really well, it's not like an instability issue or anything. So I'm not really worried about it in that sense. It's, it's truly just a matter of kind of the comfort and like the strength of the, the other parts of my leg to compensate for the fact that the knee joint isn't at a hundred percent. Well, sounds like you're doing everything you can to set yourself up. And, uh, we are, you know, you still have a few more weeks. We know that. So we'll, uh, we'll get another update, but, um, 
good to hear that you are managing that pool situation <laughs> and um, everyone else who's still doing lane reservations, I'm sure is um, commiserating with you right now. Yeah, uh, we never had lane reservations here, but I do have very, very limited hours and it's, it is very challenging. So yeah, um, I feel like your pool situation is basically lane reservations just without actually having lane reservations. So yeah, you definitely feel my pain, but, um, but Haley, you are coming off of your second place at Ironman Coeur d'Alene now a couple of weeks ago. How are you feeling? How's recovery been? Have you jumped back into training yet? I have. I I actually started back with mostly swimming. Last week was a pretty big swim volume week for me, just trying to kind of get my aerobic fitness jump started again, but with very little impact. And um, honestly, I have, I was struggling this weekend I, more than I think I did after like I raced Armand in Montremolant last year and came back pretty quick. Um, there was only like a six week turnaround between that race and Kona. And I feel like I handled that well, but this one I've, it also just got a lot warmer here all of a sudden. And I know I should not complain about the heat because, um, there are other parts of the country that are very, very, very hot. Everyone in the Southeast, everyone in Texas, everyone in Arizona, um, incredible heat. I think I read a, a quote that was like, Phoenix has had more than like 20 days above 110 degrees Fahrenheit in a row. That's so hot. I so mean, hot. if we have listeners in Phoenix, I'm like, I mean, I just imagine they must be training like I do in the winter, where it's just like all indoors. Um, and I know I, I have athletes in in Houston who are you know indoor athletes right now because it's hot, it's humid. So um, you know, props to everyone who is who is managing those warm temperatures right now. Um, like I said, I think our our high the other day was like. 80, 85 Fahrenheit. So not actually that hot, but it was hot when I previously, we'd had a really, really nice summer where it like hadn't really gone above, you know, 70 degrees Fahrenheit, which I know is around 20 Celsius. So just really mild temperatures, really nice, um, cool in the mornings. So what the other day when I did a, a like a three hour ride, which is long for post Ironman, um, I definitely didn't carry enough fluids. And I came home and one of the neighbors, the kids across the street had like a lemonade stand or what looked like one. And I was like, yes, but then he like, didn't have any cups and it was like a lot of confusion. So I was like, I just need to go home. And then I, and then Alyssa, he kind of, he still charged me. I gave him a dollar Wait, and I, he was what? like, where did got yours for nothing? I just, for being an entrepreneur, I was like, there was a lot of confusion because a lot of other neighbors came over. He got some cups and he didn't actually have lemonade. He had like lemon flavored spindrift, which is fine. I'll take some seltzer. I was just like, oh, cute. I can like do a good deed. And instead I just paid someone a dollar for nothing. nothing, but I had plenty of fluids in my own uh, home. And so I did quickly try to do everything I can to rehydrate, but that has been my, one of my biggest challenges recently. And I think that's also coming off the Ironman. It's just like, you're so dehydrated, no matter what coming out of that kind of a race. And, um, it's just like a reminder it's summer. Um, the air is very dry here. There's not a lot of shade and it can just like hit you. And so I got to get back into, um, the hydration season. Yeah. The humidity. I don't know. Do you get humidity much there? No. It's oh, okay. really dry. Whew. It's been, yeah. I mean, we've had some pretty warm days and then the humidity has been really, really high too. And like even running in the basement where it's normally super cool and on the treadmill has been like, I'm like, oh my God, I need like you know, two bottles for one hour in here. Cause it's like the humidity, you just can't get rid of it on the East coast. And then you so. look like you went swimming and yeah. running cause you're like so <laughs> drenched. And I'm I do remember that from my, the, have you ever run in the lever movement, like apparatus? No, that goes I haven't. Okay. Are you wearing like shorts, like neoprene shorts? 
So, well, they're not neoprene, but they are like thicker, right? Because they have to be fairly sturdy to like hold you up, right? And just like, just to be good for what you're using them for. So for our listeners, there's a the company Lever Movement makes this device that you attach to your home treadmill, or you can take to the gym and attach it to the gym treadmill. And um, it basically uses a pulley system to alleviate some body weight from you as you run, which is really cool. It's very easy to use. I've been using it with my knee injury and um, have been doing a good bit of the running on that. And, but it comes with these shorts that have the pulleys in them. So you can attach yourself and they are really thick. And so it is like thinking of it as neoprene is kind of probably the right way to do. And they do get really warm, Haley. And it's like, so now I've taken to just like running in my undies in the shorts, right? Like at first it was like, cool. And I could wear like just normal shorts. And then now I'm just like, wearing my undies in there. And then so like you walk around the house and you're just like dripping in sweat and you have these shorts and it's like half underwear. And Matt's like, are you, are you running in your underwear today? Or are you like, what's going on? Like, what are you getting ready to do? And I'm like, yeah, this can is- you wash the like lever shorts. You can, you can, okay. but it's also like, well, for one, so a lot of <laughs> you guys, I'm just giving you the full play-by-play on life. So as I'm building mileage, I'm trying to just do a lot of mini runs. So there's like a couple of days back to back where I'll have like six runs, right? Three runs in a day and morning, midday and evening. Right. And I do that again the next day, just to like start building mileage without like, you know, cramming it all into one run. And so I'm, I mean, I'm certainly not going to do laundry in between all of those. And so and you think like a two or three mile run, Haley, they're not going to get that sweaty. And they do. It's crazy. And I mean, any shorts would, I mean, again, it's just so humid, you know, it's like running in a pool. Um, so it's, there's, there's some dire situations going on here. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Laundry, yeah. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Um, but while we are on the topic of neoprene, um, Orca, <laughs> one of our podcast sponsors is supporting feisty media's all bodies are tri bodies campaign, which is a social media campaign that everyone should be on the lookout for in the next couple of weeks, because, um, I think they have some, uh, fun things planned on social media. Yeah. So keep an eye out on that. I think it's probably mostly on Instagram, but thanks to Orca for supporting that week. And you can, um, get your own Orca wetsuit, swim, run wetsuit or open water accessories, all of the above by going to orca.com and using the code ironwomen15 for 15% off. And Alyssa, um, I think we have a Bozeman-themed mailbag today. We do. So, Haley, it's like Bozeman-themed and it was written in by a listener named Alyssa. So don't be Woo-hoo. confused, everyone. This is this is from Alyssa. And she is an amateur triathlete in Bozeman. And as a young adult who is trying to build a career, maintain relationships, social life, and be a solid age group triathlete and struggles with the balance of it all. So she's looking for our insight on how we juggle our outside life and triathlon life. Maybe there is perfect balance, but she gets so conflicted when she wants to float the Madison and have a beer with my friends, but also wants to train and compete and do well in her races. Does she have to pick one? Really? I had to double check to make sure this wasn't Alyssa Gadeski from a prior life, like writing into the mailbag of the future. <laughs> oh man. But, well, do you feel like you figured it out? Do you have advice from her given your experience? And since you feel like you've been in her shoes? Um, so I mean, yes and no, I guess to answer the question, I, I don't think there's ever a perfect balance. I think there's always an ebb and a flow and kind of things tip and teeter right towards sport or towards life 
at different times of year or different priorities with kind of what it is. I think I think that there are some ways to make it easier. Um, I think that having a group of friends that are also athletes and triathletes and enjoy racing and training helps because then you can kind of mix training with social activities, right? I think that was like a huge thing for me to be able to get social interaction along with friends who were also training a good bit. Um, but I also, I definitely did struggle in like that early time frame where I had a lot of work friends, right. Who weren't athletes or kind of like my friends from college who were in the same city as me that weren't athletes. And I sometimes would just be really tired, right? Like I'd get up, do some training and then go meet them for brunch and mimosas and just do my training before that. And um, I think that worked for me for a time period for sure. And then I just came to the point where I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to pursue this as a career with professional triathlon. So some things will be better decisions for that career path than others. But I do think that it's going to be very individual for people. I know with athletes I coach, there are some athletes who can kind of, you know, use off season for more of that kind of fun friends and family time, and then really focus and hunker down in the training season. But other athletes, if they try and do that, they like mental health wise, just, it won't work. Right. So we kind of try to find that balance more on a day-to-day basis, even, and make sure we work within that. So it definitely is very individual, but I think, you know, you are what's, I mean, there's a reason that YOLO, or well, I guess that's not your only young ones, but you are only young ones. Right. So Um, I think kind of doing some introspection about where you see your future with sport and kind of maybe like listing priorities and stuff about around those goals that you might have will help you figure out what the balance could be in the short term. But, um, I don't know, Haley, what was your strategy with it all? Okay. So I think when you brought up, uh, like not sleeping, I think that was funny because it reminded me of. I think around the 2008 Olympics, um, when I was living in Atlanta, the local radio station would feature this like segment called the Zen of Ryan Lochte. And they were just like Ryan Lochte quotes. And I do not want to advocate as Ryan Lochte as a role model. He's made plenty of bad decisions, but there was one that really stuck with me that I just thought was hilarious. And, um, it's like, if you're going to be a man at night, you have to be a man in the morning which sounds ridiculous, but I think if you use it in this kind of thing, I mean, you could also say woman, but I think it's like, if you are going to go out and party and, you know, do something at night, then you've got to get yourself up and work out and get your training done in the morning. Like you can't sleep in, you can't miss that. Like you had fun and whatever you did, you know, you got to get your shit together in the morning and and get your work done. And so I think about it all, all the time, you know, is that, is that worth it? Like is whatever activity I'm doing that may not be hundred percent beneficial to my training. Is it worth it for my mental health, for my social life? And I have to know that I'm making this decision. And so tomorrow morning when I wake up and I'm tired and possibly hungover, it's like, get your shit together, get some fluids in you and get going and get it done because you chose to have fun last night. And now you got to get your work done. So I do think it's a little extreme because we are professional athletes. Um, you know, it's my job. And when you're an age grouper, you gotta have a little bit more grace with yourself. But, um, but that is, I, I do, I think about that one all the time. And obviously I'm not going to do that every single day. I think what you said about seasonality, um, within like this actual year is good, but also maybe even within a week. Um, I remember when Niles Vanderpool, who was the, uh, Olympic 
speed skater, gold medalist, world record holder, his training plans came out and everyone was shocked because he takes two days off a week, but his five days of training are like massive. And then he takes Saturday, Sunday off. And I think the reason was, so he could have a social life and he could do things with his friends. And so even, you know, uh, someone who's at the very, very top of the sport for ever, um, you know, he does find time for, for social life. And he does find that that helps his overall performance, his life, his balance, that kind of thing. So maybe it's something like that where, okay, your friends know that you're available on, you know, Saturday, Sunday, and, or maybe it's Thursday, Friday or something like that. And, um, you know, if they are the kind of people who are supportive of you and your goals and your life, they're probably going to respect that. And, they will um, be like, okay, on, you know, on Fridays, Alyssa, we're going to go do, you know, float the Madison and have a really good time. And, but we'll leave her alone on, on Mondays because we know that that's a a training day. Um, And the last thing, I think what you mentioned too, about being with friends um, who also do exercise. One of the, but my favorite things, um, my friend, Aaron, who doesn't live in Bozeman anymore, but we always talked about social recovery. And I think this is something we stole from a maybe a Steve Magnus book, which again, I don't take everything that he says, uh, as like the honest truth, but I think there's nuggets, you know, that you can pull from. And, um, and it was the idea that like, you can do a hard workout. We usually would do our Friday swim, a hard Friday swim. And then we go get breakfast and coffee and kind of just like chat about whatever for a while. And I think like it actually can give you a training benefit, like, because you get that kind of downtime after, a, um, a hard session, obviously you're refueling, but you're also getting to kind of like, just kind of decompress with people who did that same session with you. And before you move on to like the rest of life. And so I think that incorporating that, um, and maybe, maybe not all your friends are going to do the actual workout with you, but they're like, okay, you know, Alyssa is going to have this run. And then we are going to meet up and have a couple of beers and chat with her and ask her about her run or, or talk about whatever. And you can kind of count that as your social recovery. So I think there are ways to do it. I don't think you have to pick one. Um, but maybe it does take a little bit of strategizing and communication and, um, occasionally sucking it up when you don't quite get enough sleep. Haley, have you ever floated down the Madison? No, <laughs> I'm not a river floater. I, um, Me I, either. I like, like, yeah. I get seasick in a swimming pool. So like me in a raft is not, but I, I understand it's very, very fun. The Madison river is beautiful and it sounds like a lot of fun, but like, I cannot also, I if, could not add alcohol to that. It would just be me vomiting on the side, which I would have zero not friends. Good. I would have not fewer good. friends than I, but you know, a post swim latte is totally my thing. So, um, you know, it's also just, yeah, we each have our own things, but that's okay too. And thanks to Alyssa for the mailbag question. We are going on a two-week production break um, over the next two weeks, but please keep sending in mailbag questions to ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And we will answer those when we're back after the two weeks. Oh, I hope we have a very full po- a very full mailbag when we get back. So we have lots of questions to answer in the in the coming weeks and months. Haley, as we send our listeners off for this two-week break, though, we and we will still be putting out um episodes. It's just going to be, I think some of our favorite, um, or more popular episodes, right? Oh yeah. I think they okay. are. I think yeah. they're replaying. So they'll, they'll, <laughs> it might be uh time to catch up on, on past episodes, everyone. But in the meantime, uh, today we bring everyone a really, really great chat. We talked to Christine Yu this week. She is an athlete, a mother, a wife, and an award-winning journalist. She writes about sports, science, and health 
And luckily for us, she especially loves telling stories about the intersection of sports science and women athletes. She wrote a book about it, and it's called Up to Speed, The Groundbreaking Science of Women Athletes. It was published in May, and we got our hands on a copy right away to chat with Christine all about everything. Um, Hopefully, you all have your copy in hand as we listen to our talk with Christine coming up next. Hi, Christine. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I think with our listener base, I don't need to have you like sell why everyone needs to read up to speed and why it's an important read for all of our listeners, right? So maybe let's start out by having you tell us just a little bit about your background as an athlete and why the topic of the science of women athletes is important personally for you to have devoted so much energy into creating this lovely book. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I mean, I grew up playing sports as a kid. It was kind of just what we had to do at school. I think like there was no choice. You had to play on these teams, um, which I think was actually a good thing for me in the sense that, um, my parents, you know, immigrated here from Hong Kong. They weren't exactly the most sporty people. So I'm not quite sure if I necessarily would have been introduced to sports in that way or encouraged to do sports in that way. Um, had I not like not had an option to do it. Um, and so, you know, I kind of, sports has always been a part of my life and being active and moving my body has always been something that, you know, has been, I guess, part of my identity and something that helps ground me. Um, but I wasn't a great athlete by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I think it was the combination of, you know, that interest in sports and then my interest in, you know, health and physiology and the human body, you know, I say the plan was I was supposed to go to medical school. Like those two things have always been kind of in my background. Um, but in terms of like actually <laughs> deciding to devote so much time in this, I think part of it was, you know, while I have done sports a lot, like I've always been injured um, and have had these kind of weird injuries in a way, like sure, some overuse stuff and and whatnot, that's, you know, normal. Um, but you know, I tore my ACL in college skiing. Um, I retore it about 15 years later while doing intervals on the track, which I mean, <laughs> it doesn't, it's not very common way to t- re-tear one's ACL or to tear it at all. Um, I also dislocated my shoulder swimming while I was training for a triathlon. So just swimming. I wasn't doing butterfly or anything like that. I was just swimming freestyle. And it was like, I literally just pulled like my, my arm, like too far forward. And I pulled my shoulder out of my socket, which again, I'm not quite sure how that happens. Um, since swimming is, you know, it's not impact. It's supposed to be like really good for you. Um, so it's like those kind of things where it's always, kind of been in the back of my mind, like there's something not right with my body or like not quite fit for sports and just feeling like, um, even though I loved doing these things that I felt a little bit like an anomaly in a way, right? Like that there's something wasn't quite a fit. Um, and so through, I'm a journalist, right? Like I cover sports and health. And so it just in conversations with other folks, um, this, this sense of kind of being an anomaly in some way, shape or form, right? Like not necessarily like my weird, apparently very lax ligament issues, um, but like other things like, you know, oh, I always get stress fractures or 
oh, like I'm, you know, I'm, I lost my period for like a number of years, like all these things that kind of kept cropping up that made me really curious as to like, why is that? Like, why is this so pervasive in the women that I talk to? Um, it's, it's not something that I hear at all, right. From like the men that I talk to, or that sense of like, not quite fitting. Right. And, and so you did, you took this, all this, you did all the research, you compiled everything. I am curious. I know this is probably something we should ask later, but, uh, do you feel like you got answers for yourself through this, this researching and writing process? Not necessarily answers per se. Um, but I think what I ended up getting out of it was a little bit more grace for myself. Um, so I, I always blamed myself in a way, right? Like, even though it's like, this is my body and like, I can't really do anything about it, right? Like this is what I've been, was born with or whatever, my genetics, my family history. Um, I can't do anything about that. And so, but I always felt like there was not necessarily shame, but there definitely was like, I, I blamed myself, right? Like, again, it was like some, somehow my problem. Um, but I think in the course of reporting all of this, um, I took like that was lifted a little bit. Like I didn't, it it wasn't all on me, right? Like there's a million other extenuating circumstances and other factors and environmental factors around me that may have contributed to some of the things that I feel, right? Like social, cultural, whatever it might be, scientific, obviously. Um, and so kind of the best example I can give of this is uh I tore my good knees ACL, <laughs> um, in February skiing. Um, oh, oh, and no. so, <laughs> so I'm like currently, yeah, so that's a whole other story, but, um, the, when I, so when I retore my, my ACL back, you know, in 2013 or no 2012, maybe, um, I was really mad. Like I was really mad at myself. I was like, just pissed like over everything. Right. I was like, I was doing everything right. Um, you know, I was doing everything I thought I should be doing. Um, but this time, you know, granted it was like just this kind of fluke thing while I was skiing. Um, I, when I like kind of landed really hard, heard something pop knew pretty much immediately sat down in the snow, but I didn't have that same anger, right. That same, like really being really pissed off. It was almost, I was really calm and almost like, I don't know, like it was just a very different feeling. And I was like, oh wait, maybe that's personal growth. <laughs> right. Like, um, and my brother was with me and he's like, he's like, this is really weird. Like you're really calm and like, not mad. Like what's going on. This is so unlike you. <laughs> you're thinking about all the science that's going into this moment, even though it's like a terrible moment, you're like, yeah. Hey, and I have a community of people who have a similar issue. I think now, you know, the whole backstory and um, speaking of community, I, I believe just last week you were at the female athlete conference in Boston. You were one of the presenters. And I think some of the folks from the feisty media network were also in attendance, but for those of us, including Alyssa and myself who, who were not there, can you tell us about your role at the conference and your experience? Yeah. So I actually wasn't presenting at the conference. Okay. Um, I had a book, I had a book event, um, the night before the conference started, um, just at a like, luckily there was like an independent bookstore, you know, literally 10 minutes away. Um, and so I was in conversation with Mary Keynes, a former professional runner, um, who had that amazing New York times op-ed back in 2019. Um, 
yeah. And we kind of, you know, we were just talking about her work, my work, the book and all of that. So that was pretty amazing. Um, at the conference itself, um, I was there primarily like as an attendee, right. Um, <laughs> as a journalist, always looking for, you know, potential story ideas and, you know, also just, this is my beat, right? Like love hearing about what the science scientists and researchers are learning and continuing to learn. Um, but it was fabulous. It was like three days of literally like the who's who in this community who are studying women, who are studying, you know, female athletes who are really pushing this forward. There are a lot of, um, also coaches and other just like practitioners in the field as well. Like, so, you know, physical therapists, athletic trainers who are all there just really wanting to learn more about like how we can, you know, better serve girls and women in sport. Um, and the thing that really strikes me about this community overall is that they're so incredibly collaborative, right? There's, at least from my perspective, like there doesn't seem to be like this whole turf war, right? In terms of like, this is my thing, go away. But like, they're actively looking for different ways to that they can work together. So like folks in the US, you know, with folks in the UK and Australia are like collaborating so much because they can't do it all. Right. And so they're like, we'll take this piece. You take that piece. I'll take, you know, you take that piece and then we'll come together and figure out how all this works together. Um, and so for me, it was like more of just like a special experience too, because I pretty much everyone that I interviewed for the book was attending the conference as a presenter. So it was an opportunity just to like meet folks in person and thank them in person too, which was really fun. Yeah. Cause as your book shows so much is happening recently, like so recently, but you mentioned Mary Kane and, uh, in your book, you mentioned her as, you know, this kind of a person who did cause a pivotal shift in conversations around women in sports. And were you able to see Mary's speech? Because I just saw a lot of online chatter about, about it and how it was unexpected. And uh, I was just curious if, you know, what, what she said. Yeah. Yeah. So I was there for Mary's speech. Um, I think most people expected it to be kind of a talk, right? Like about her experience with Nike um, and, you know, all the things that she talked about in her op-ed, right? Because that seems to make the most sense, right? Because the things that she encountered has so much rele relevance to the work that was being spoken about at the conference. Um, but it was different. It wasn't what folks expected. It was more about kind of her journey over the last, you know, seven years. Like she really, she hasn't been able to really run a lot because she's had this weird situation going on with her leg. And so it was more about her um, talking about how it really has taken seven years to figure out what's going on because the doctors don't know. She kept going in circles. Um, you know, the diagnos diagnostic tests and treatments like didn't, could never quite figure out what was going on. Um, but I think what was really interesting about her, her speech was that you know, people always ask, you know, what's your pain, right? Like it, it's like, if you have pain, then the medical professionals will take you more seriously in a way. Right. Um, and we all, ha we have those pain scales and all of that. Um, but she, Mary never had pain with the thing that she was experiencing, which turned out, I can't remember exactly what condition it was. Um, but you know, it's like when you Google it, pain is one of the indicators, but she never had it. So she was kind of like mm -hmm. discounting it in the, in her mind. But her point being that, you know, as athletes, you're accustomed to pain, right? Like 
you're accustomed to dealing with pain and pushing through it. And so like, that's, especially when you're working with an athletic population that may or may not be the, (laughs) the best indicator, right. For what's going on. Um, and so for her, she's like, well, what if like, instead of we, of asking about pain, we actually ask folks, like, how is this affecting your life? right? On a scale of one to 10. Cause then she's like, then I could like point to like, it's like 10, you know, nine or 10 or whatever. It's like, it's severely affecting my life, but it's not painful. Right. So it, it was, th- she talked about things like that and about, um, you know, how doctors would also often dismiss, you know, what she said, because like, she might have like some mental health diagnosis, right. in, in her chart, right. Or they knew about the New York times op-ed and like assume that it was like all this like trauma, which yes, sure. Trauma can have an impact on our health and our, and our bodies, but like you're making the assumption off the bat without at, like actually asking her the questions of it. So I think especially for that population of healthcare providers, it was a really eye-opening conversation about how you talk to athletes, how you work with athletes, um, and really how we should be thinking, right? More holistically about how we treat these, you know, think about treating some of these conditions. Yeah, we have had Mary on the Iron Mama podcast, and it's it's good to hear that she does have a diagnosis because I know Selfishly, we would love to see her continue to triathlon a little bit more to see what she can do, but um, we're always rooting for Mary. And um, Christine, in addition to Mary, you talk to a lot of high-profile women, heard their stories, notably talking to them like about times when maybe the systems had failed them as female athletes. You talk to Alexi Pappas, Courtney DeWalter, Kara Goucher. Like, I mean, I could go on and on with these names, right? And I'm curious, what was their reaction when you were able to talk to them or sit down with them and dig into this? Was there like hesitancy? Was there excitement? Kind of how did you feel like it was getting received? Especially, you know, you didn't, you started this years ago when it was, you know, becoming kind of a buzzword, right? And like a big theme, but not as much as it is now. Yeah, I think. There were, you know, there was definitely a variety of reactions, right? There would be folks who spoke with me and it was almost like a relief in a way, or like um, they could talk about these experiences that they've been going through in a way that I think, I don't know, I hope, <laughs> like made them feel like, you know, they're being seen and heard and taken seriously, like that, um you know, it was just an, it was an opportunity to, you know, really share some of these crazy things that they have had to go through. Right. Um, whether it has been like gaslighting or medical gaslighting or, you know, coaching situations or just being given the runaround, right. For years, um, and being ignored. Um, there were folks who were, I think less kind of, I want to say aware, but, you know, kind of, oh, yes, I guess aware of like these gender data gaps and be, and it was, it was like, not surprised, but kind of like, oh, a lot more curiosity about like, you know, what, um, what we might be missing in, you know, in not studying women and just, I think kind of started to get their brains turning a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall there was almost a sense of like, relief in the sense like, yes, we need to be talking about this more. We should be talking about this more. Why aren't we talking about this more? 
And um, I think you do a really incredible job of of kind of breaking down the different studies that you include in the book and, and also explain the nuance. It kind of reminded me years ago, we, we talked to um, Christia Schwanden about good to go her book about the science of recovery. And, and she starts it by kind of explaining how studies can be biased. And I think your, your book um, does a good job of, you know, reiterating that. And then even going a step further of being like nuances of, of how the media will, you know, kind of uh, attached to one piece of a study and make it seem like black and white. And you're like, okay, it isn't. Um, I think one example was the U.S. women's national team at the World Cup and tracking their periods. And you're like, okay, there's a little bit more to it than just tracking your period. And so what kind of pitfalls do you think we you know, should be aware of when we're reading these media uh, headlines that you just want to like drive home for, for the average listener, average reader? Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely, you know, as a journalist, right? Like definitely guilty of doing this, right? Like, because you're working on such quick turnaround deadlines a lot of the times and you're like, I just need one study. <laughs> like I just need something to be able to link to and show my editor that like there's actually evidence behind this, right? Um, but I think like as a consumer of this, it is recognizing, you know, in part that sure, this might be newsworthy, but the news publication and the media outlet also wants you to read this, like needs to get you to read this, right? So there's, there, it, you know, not to say that it's biased necessarily, but, you know, but that is part of the calculation in terms of like how they at least frame the headlines. And I, you know, just reiterating that the journalists don't have any control over the headlines because I get lots of angry messages sometimes, but like, that's a terrible headline. I'm like, I know. Um, but I think like it is as you are reading, I mean, you know, because I, for example, you know, we always see in the newspaper, it's like, you know, I remember back in the day, it's like red wine is great for you. Red wine is terrible for you. Red wine is great for you. And then you see the same thing with eggs and it's like this constant back and forth of, and it leaves like, I think the average consumer being like, well, which is it? Right. And I think it's just understanding one science is never a complete practice, if you will. It's constantly evolving. We're constantly learning new things. But I think as you look at these studies and read these studies, it is trying to understand a little bit more of, or being at least being aware of like the context of it, right? Like how does this fit into, you know, the larger um, literature database or, you know, evidence base, if you will. And I know that's not something everyone's going to be doing, but just at least like having that kind of question in your minds, like, why are they choosing to highlight this study? What is significant or different about it? Um, that is kind of making it float up to the surface because there are a million and a half studies. Right. Um, and so I think like just being aware of that, being aware, you know, obviously of kind of population too, like who's being studied how many, like, is this like a study of like eight people or is this, a, you know, a, you know, a larger population-based studies. And that also kind of can skew, you know, the, how applicable those findings might be across, you know, a general population and to you. Um, so I think, you know, it is, you know, science literacy obviously is a, a big thing that I think as a, as a, society we really need to work on. But I think, you know, just going into looking at some of these articles and just being a little skeptical in a way, right. And having those questions in mind. And Christine, from concussions to periods, you covered a lot of ground in terms of the research in this book. And was there any like 
bucket of research about women's specific health that surprised you the most? That's a great question. I think the two that probably surprised me the most was um, breast biomechanics and just how complicated it is and how understudied it is, or like how recently that's only been like a real field of study, um, which makes sense when you think about how terrible sports bras are, right. Or historically. Um, and I think the other bucket is really around injury. Um, because I think, again, we think of injury very much as like an individual thing, like, a, you know, it's like, what are your intrinsic injury risk factors, right? Um, and we think of all the ways in which like our bodies are wrong or injury prone. But I think, you know, when you look at some of the research and again, you zoom out a little bit, you get a broader picture of, of sure, there are like, in like, factors intrinsic to you as a person in your body, but there are also a lot of factors around you, you know, in the environment and thinking about like, you know, social cultural values, um, thinking about access to resources and facilities, um, when, you know, how someone is encouraged to be active or not, like all of those things matter. I was so surprised to learn like the first sports bra was, was invented like four or five years after title nine. I'm just like, that's so recent. And now I like wear a sports bra as like a shirt all the time. It's like in style. But um, um, I, okay. The other most surprising thing for me was the study of the specialized bike saddle study where they, where women volunteered to ride naked on a clear saddle. And yeah. I'm like, so thankful for those women like doing that, but I like, couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Well, it, but that's like a great example, right. Of like, the saddle that, you know, was redesigned to accommodate men's physiology because, right, the old saddle was causing like erectile dysfunction and God forbid that happened. Um, so they redesigned it, but they just assumed that you could just kind of make it wider and it'll work for women too, right? But female physiology and, gen and like, especially in the general area is very different. Um, and so it caused all these problems, but I think like it, it was a great example of, you know, bringing in someone who looked at the whole design process, like from ground zero, right. And he brought in his expertise with prosthetics and thinking about like how, you know, you fit prosthetics because it's, it's similar in that way, right? Like your the stump isn't meant to be weight bearing like that tissue. And so you have to think about how you avoid like the swelling and like, you know, restricting blood flow, like all these different things in a similar way that ha happens right in a woman's like general area, because those tissues also are not meant to be weight bearing. Um, and Andy Pruitt, who led this design, like had also had all this experience working at University of Colorado and like working with women's teams there. So he also knew that population, I think, which helped with some of the buy-in to do some of this stuff. Yeah, we do need more buy-in. I think that's another thing that you really talk about is, is encouraging women to participate in these studies. And I've seen um, Allison Wade, who does the Fast Women newsletter, uh, also do a call out. You know, she'll always post and she'll be like, she tries to participate in every study. And I mean, I admit, like, I, I don't, I'm like, oh, I don't want to tell anyone this information. And so like, how, you know, how do we encourage people like me to, to participate in these studies and how important they are? Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that 
like I realized too, I'm like, oh, I always just ignore those because I'm like, oh, A, like no one wants to hear about from me, but like, but also I'm like, oh, that's too much time. Right. But I think it is true. Like if we want more research, if we want to understand what's going on, like the, there's only so much the researchers can do on their end. They need the participants to actually study and participate in these, in, in the coming to the lab, fill out a survey, whatever it is. Um, and I think, yes, part of it is like the time, the commitment, whatever it might, it might cost on that end. Um, but I think it's also this issue, like you said, you're like, I don't want to tell anyone about this, but I think part of it is normalizing these, you know, this is just part of our physiology, part of our lived experience as people. Um, and yet we have a really hard time talking about it, but the more that we can normalize these conversations, the more that we can kind of normalize just it's a woman's physiology. That is it just like our muscles, just like our bones, like our, our hormones, our menstrual cycles, you know, breast pain, all of these things are just normal. They're just part of our bodies, just part of our experience. It has nothing to do with like, and it, cause I think a lot of times it gets caught up in, um, you know, being sexualized in some way, shape or form. Right. Um, and I think that the more that we can just continue to talk about it and just accept it as fact, right. That this is our anatomy. This is our physiology that can go a long way. You also cover a lot of ground from the perspective of different age spans across sport, um, from, you know, young women to through menopause and beyond. And Mary Kane's like a great example of how a lack of research and a lack of awareness and normalization about some of these topics can actually be very dangerous. Right. Um, so I'm curious, like, you know, when do you think that research bias is the most dangerous? Like, was there one particular kind of bucket that really like kept you up at night, right? Work is like, I worry when I read some of this, I'm like, oh my gosh, I think of all the women you know, in college sports who are experiencing these things. And it's like, it can be overwhelming. Yeah. I do think it, for me, the, it is the younger girls and women that keeps me up <laughs> like a lot. Um, because I think so much of our beliefs about our bodies, our understanding, it gets set in those young ages. Right. Um, and I feel like the more that we can empower girls and, and younger women with the not just like straight up knowledge, right, about their bodies and what's going on, the more that we can set that foundation for them to, you know, have healthy, healthier health habits, maybe, or, you know, at least empower them to make, you know, decisions that might then, right, kind of ensure their longer term health and longer term athlete development. Cause right now, cause I think about it. And part of like my aha moment for writing this book was, you know, it wasn't until I was maybe like late thirties or 40 or something like that. When I, A, first really heard the term female athlete triad and B, heard that my adolescent, like adolescent years are like prime boom building periods. Right. And that nutrition is so tied to this, blah, blah, blah. And for me, I was like, why didn't I know this as like as a teenager, right? Growing up. Um, because I feel like had I known that, I probably would have made different decisions in terms of how I chose to feel my body or not, you know, in a lot of cases. Um, 
but like, I can't do anything about my bone density and health now really. Right. It's like, I can't build it up. I can't catch up. But like, had I known that at that point and understanding kind of the longer term implications of it, then maybe I would have made different choices. Right. So for me, it is that younger age. And especially when we think about the systems in which we're then putting them in this like hyper competitive youth sports system that is so focused on just being the best at this like elite level, getting the college scholarship, blah, 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 right? Um, that we lose sight of what's actually developmentally appropriate or matru- you know, or appropriate for their maturational phase and, and stage. Um, and I think that that's really dangerous. Hopefully we have uh, parents, coaches, <laughs> maybe even some actual teenagers listening and they will pick up up to speed. Um, I am definitely a consumer. I love, um, I love buying things, especially like sporting goods. And I, I, I was, I gasped sometimes reading your book at some of the stats on, you know, women's specific Nike soccer uniforms weren't created until 2019. I mean, that's like yesterday. And, um, I think you, you cite a stat about by 2028, uh, it's estimated that 75% of all discretionary spending will be done by women and, and companies are starting to catch on to this. And you highlight a few that are like, Hey, you've got to like market to women. You need to market to, you know, for plus size women in apparel, uh, areas because they use the average size of a size six, which is not the average size of an American woman. And, um, and I mean, I think you do a really, really good job of that are, you know, like, how do you feel in general? Are you optimistic about, about women's apparel, athletic apparel, or do you feel like it's like, okay, come on, hurry up. Well, it's definitely like a hurry up situation, I think. Cause like, like you said, like it, it it's 2020, like we should have this by now. I feel like, um, maybe that's unreasonable, but I feel like we, you know, we should have more offerings at this point, um, in terms of size, in terms of stuff that is, that does pay attention to women, what women need and what they want. Um, that isn't just kind of like shrink it and pink it type things. Um, you know, along with the Nike, the soccer uniform, it's like, there hasn't been, you know, female specific soccer cleats until 2020 again, like yesterday, I'm like, how, how is that possible? Given how huge soccer is in the world, how many girls and women play the sport, you know, these, all these claims about, um, you know, wanting to grow the sport amongst, amongst women, but it's like, if you want to do all that stuff, you need to actually invest in the gear and the equipment that actually makes it possible to do this stuff and not just to keep expecting women to kind of, you know, DIY their own, their way to like putting together their kit. Right. Um, so in, in some respect, you know, I'm a little fr- like frustrated, but I do think like we're starting to see, um, more attention to this, right. Um, more brands and companies and people who are out there doing the work that are trying to push this message forward. But I still think it, you know, it does rely on those in the leadership positions in power to allocate the money and the resources to actually make these products a reality, right? As I kind of watched the book launch, I guess is what it's probably called, right? The book launch, it kind of felt like a wave. Like I could see a building and building and then like a total splash and takeover of, you know, the echo chamber I've kind of built for myself on social media at least, right? And I admit that. Um, and it seems like 
like we've said, like the women involved are like rallying with this information, right? And really kind of getting behind it. And it's definitely like a bit of my own, you know, again, the echo chamber kind of concept. Um, so I'm curious, like what the reaction may be from the men at the high level of sport and, and things like that. Have you, you know, been surprised by any reactions from men? Are you encouraged? Are you, you know, I guess what kind of how has it been received? Because you yeah. make a point in the book to be very clear that it is for everyone, right? Like we all need this information and we all need to have these tools in our tool belt, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, I'm grateful in that at least the reaction that I've seen or allowed myself to see, right? Like it has been um, very positive from the men who have read the book um, in the sense that like it has been very eye-opening for them, right? Um, these are issues obviously they've never really thought about, but as, you know, husbands, partners, fathers, whatever, uh, with women and girls in their lives, like they realize that this is an important thing that needs to be considered and we can work that needs to be done. Um, I've also been heartened by like, you know, even folks who are like, you know, coach, well-known coaches or like, you know, big in the field who have, you know, been kind of humble in a way and says like that in admitting, like they've learned so much from this book, um, which, you know, <laughs> surprises me, but like, is also again, that this is why I wanted to write it too, right? Like to help spread the message, get the word out about the work that's being done, the work that still needs to be done and why it is important. And how has that publishing and this book tour process? I, I mean, you kind of you you cite pretty much every other book um, that in you know talks about science of women's sports, and it's a very short list. And and so as we need this more research, we need more books like yours. We need you know mass media attention, social media attention, book tours. I mean, are you feeling like you're making a difference and and showcasing? you know, being a woman author and talking about women's sports. Yeah. It's definitely been a very weird experience to be completely honest. You know, So like on the one hand, I think you have like the business side of things, right. In sales and like whatever reviews or, you know, publicity and all this stuff. Um, and on that end, like it can feel a little disheartening, right? Because, you know, it's very easy as with everything, it's easy to focus on numbers and watch go up and down and go down and go down, you know, and all these things and, and worry that like, oh my God, this is totally tanking. This isn't, you know, no one's reading this, no one cares. But then like I do book events or, you know, I get messages on social media from folks who you know, who want to talk about this, right. Who have so many questions and are just hungry for knowledge and information. Um, and who just want to give the book like to everyone they know. Right. And so it's, it is, it's kind of remembering that piece of it, right. The kind of those in-person in interactions. And like, that's why I wrote the book, um, because I did, you know, I wanted to start these conversations and that was what was important to me. And like, sure, obviously like sales matter, like it helps. Um, but I mean, but to your point, Alyssa, before, like, it does feel like very much like within my echo chamber too, like, yes, it, the book is getting out and, and all of that, but it's, I think trying to figure out how to expand it 
right? Like beyond this community um, that I'm pretty, I feel at least pretty entrenched in. Yeah, I feel like it needs to be sitting on, I don't know, in the locker, I guess, of like all (laughs) college athletes or something or like high school athletes even, right? I mean, on the desks of those people, it's like required reading, I think. Um, And Christine, we we don't want to take up too much of your time uh, this morning, but I did want to kind of close with the question of what excites you the most about women's sports these days? I mean, these athletes out there, I mean, at all levels of sport are just doing such phenomenal things, right? And I think it's a particularly exciting time for women's sports, just, you know, watching, you know, watching like the the Women's World Cup, right? Like it's a month away and seeing all the excitement around it. But more than that, just seeing like the NWSL start to come into its own, seeing clubs like, you know, Angel City, like being female backed and led, really trying to do something differently, seeing the women of the WNBA, again, like leading this charge for like a lot of social change work and social justice work that they've done. But I think like really seeing these athletes as more than athletes, right? That they're doing, yes, they are doing amazing things on the court, on the field, you know, on the track or whatever it is. But outside of that, they really are you know, leading change in so many different arenas. And I think showing us like how just multifaceted and multidimensional they are. And I think that at least it seems like, I hope so, um, that people are maybe finally ready to like take women's sports seriously and invest in it because it's such an incredible opportunity. Um, and you know, it, it needs the attention. It needs the investment. And we need to get this book to everyone. So what is the best way for our listeners to, to, you know, to order up to speed the groundbreaking science of women athletes? What's the best way for, for them to get it? Yeah. So, um, on my website, which is christinemu.com, um, there are links, lots of different links where you can buy the book. Um, it's available on hardcover ebook audiobook and you know any kind of book <laughs> um that's probably the easiest way um and then i also have links like in social media too did you read the audiobook version of is, is it you no thank god oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> i'm like i know my strengths reading out loud is not one of them i I'm feel also- like you have a great yeah voice i was gonna say it. oh i would have loved to like have your voice as i was listening it would have been nice yeah i'm like terrified like I, I don't, I'm like, I terrified of like tripping over like very scientific words and stuff or like not knowing how to pronounce these things, which I guess like I could prepare beforehand, but I was like, no, I, I'm not good at that. I'm going to leave that to the narrator, the like professionals. But I heard that the, uh, um, this woman, Cindy, who narrated the book, she's, I've just only heard great things about her, um, from folks who've listened to the book. Well, we have it in hard copy and it's a beautiful cover. It'll make a nice addition to everyone's bookshelves and coffee tables. So um, we will link to your website in the show notes for everyone. And Christine, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it. No, thank you so much for having me. Thank you to Christine for coming on the show. Thank you to her for all her hard work writing up to speed. If you haven't read it already, I highly recommend it for a summer reading. Um, and you know, maybe it's something you can do if you've, if you've listened to every single one of our shows and you have a break for the next two weeks, you know, pick up up to speed, read it and, uh, or maybe get the audiobook if you, if that's how you prefer to, uh, to, you know, get your information and you can fill the void that we might be leaving for the next two weeks. All right, Haley. Well, 
I wish you well on these two weeks of training here as you get ready for I'm starting, I'm assuming starting training focused on the world championships for Ironman in Kona. Um, I hope that your weeks are filled with cooler temps and lemonade stands that have cups for the record. <laughs> I should have just drank right from the <laughs> the whole thing just ruined it for everyone now. Um, I'm trying to be a good person. You know, every day it's a struggle, but Alyssa, have a great break. I'll talk to you uh, in early August and look forward to catching up. Bye, Haley. You've been listening to the Iron Women podcast hosted by Haley Chura and Alyssa Gadeski. Iron Women is a production of Feisty Media and is edited by Lydia Russell and produced by Ella Natitian. Head to livefeisty.com to find more podcasts, stories, and fresh perspectives. Thanks for listening.